Thank you very much. It's great, great being with you. I was sitting there reflecting on how many friends I feel I have at this church and already just through different connections, it was fun for me to be in Israel with Toby and his beautiful wife and I have on my computer a solo that he played in Jerusalem and that was rich and I was reminded seeing him play up here this morning about the beauty of that. I uh, met a friend, Jeff Canada, who God's used significantly to start a movement of young disciples in Italy, and we've known each other through the years, and knowing he has found a bride here at this church, a new bride, and so it's just been, and then, of course, Tom is one of my heroes, anybody who pastors a church for 38 years so faithfully as he has, I trust you know what blessings you have in Pastor Tom, and so, yeah, yeah. So it really is my pleasure to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. And if you have your Bibles, if you turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. I want to look at just one simple text this morning. And it's found right in 1 John chapter 2. And it reads simply like this. This is how we know we are in him. And then it says this. Whoever claims to be in him. And it's a legal term there. It's the word legal, literally, whoever claims to be in Christ, and then an imperative, we must walk as Jesus walked. I'm convinced the key word in this verse is the word as. So this morning, I want to try to practically ask, answer the question, what does it mean to walk as Jesus walked? Now, I've been asked to do this because I... First off, been really encouraged how your teaching team here and Tom has done such an excellent job of teaching through the four chairs, a book that I'd written that a number of you have commented you've had the chance to read. Uh, they did an excellent job and it was fun for me to see it taught here, but I would, can I encourage you in one thing as a church? Uh, these four chairs really just kind of represent a mini version, a metaphor of Christ and how he so masterfully developed disciples. And, and I always love to put a gap between the first two because I love to put the cross here because if you remember in that teaching series, these are seekers, these are new believers, this is workers, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And then this is disciple makers, people who go and reproduce their life in others. And Tom in the book writes, is written about how do you move people through the process. And Jesus so masterfully gave challenges in the chairs being a metaphor for those challenges of how Jesus so masterfully developed people. Now there's so many layers that could be put on that. My challenge to you is this, don't just forget the series, keep going deeper in it, because really you're going deeper in Jesus and his life. I mean, I could go to John 15 at the end of his life where Jesus talks about no fruit and fruit and more fruit and much fruit. And in that text, he talked about barriers between the chairs and how some people get stuck in chair two or some people get to chair three and say, oh, I'm going back to chair two. And never experience the fullness that God has for them, which I believe God's agenda to get every one of us in this room to, to chair four where he says, by this you'll prove to be my disciples if you bear much fruit and so prove that you are my disciples. 
that, that you keep going deeper in this and ask questions. Why am I getting stuck? Or what do I need to do to get to the next level? Or how can I be used by God in this way? Keep going deeper. I mean, you could put on the layer of, of Philippians 3.10 that I may know him. Chair one, the power of his resurrection. Chair two, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. Because so many people never make it through chair three because chair three is about suffering, servanthood, and sacrifice. You have to learn to die to yourself to begin to bear more fruit. And so many people get here and say, oh, I'm going back because it's too tough. The fellowship of sharing his suffering and then becoming like him in his death. I remember spending just the two years when I was training the staff at Southeast. What does it mean to become like Jesus in his death? Go back to his life. Look at the last nine months. Analyze what attitudes did Jesus have as he walked to the cross. And in some of my studies and works I've, I've written, I've identified six attitudes of Jesus, what it means to go become like him in his death. My challenge to you is simply this. First off, what chair are you in? Secondly, where are your friends in? Where are your kids at? And how can you help them move to the next chair? But keep going deeper in the life of Christ because it's such a rich subject. Jesus is a very deep well. And so this morning, I want to, Take a, 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 a 30 foot, 1,000 foot level, look at an overview of a series that Tom has mentioned. He's going to start preaching uh, here in February called Walking as Jesus Walked. So I simply want to give that big picture overview, and then Tom will come and answer all the questions you have, okay? Uh, he's going to solve every problem you've ever had when he does that series. <laughs> if you don't mind, I'd like to just open with prayer and ask God to speak to us. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being here. I thank you for good friends that you brought in my life and friends even at this church. And I thank you for the body of Christ and for your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, this morning I'd ask that I quickly disappear and Jesus would appear. That every one of us in this room, we know you dwell within us and you come alongside of us. But I pray that you just fill this room You'd speak to every one of us that we all walk out talking about Jesus and thinking about something we hadn't thought about before. And we ask you to do that by faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I grew up in a large farm family. I say it was a large farm family in South Dakota because there were 16 kids in that family. Uh, I am number 15 of those 16 kids. If some of you watch my videos, you know this, but... Uh, I'm glad my parents had so many kids or I would not be here. Uh, the story was in our family that we, all the brothers and sisters' names were D, so we wanted to call the last one done. <laughs> and when number 16 child was born, my dad had on a farm a small airplane, flew my mom off of the hospital. We heard through the grapevine it was a boy, so when the plane landed back in the farm, the whole family was gathered out there, and the first question they asked him was, did dad, did you call him done, did you call him done? Dad kind of looked up with that twinkle in his eye and said, no, we didn't. And he said, why, Dad? Why didn't you call him done? And Dad said, well, I'm not sure we're done yet. <laughs> but then the kids came back and said, Dad, if we did have even more kids, you could call them done number one, done number two, done number three. Someone said it could have been overdone, underdone. My, my third daughter, Christy, was grandchild number 70 for my parents. Yeah, that's kind of my response, too. That's probably why I'm so passionate about multiplication, because I've seen it in our family. <laughs> but again, this morning, I, I want to 
answer a question for me was a game changer in my own walk with Jesus. And the question was raised in this verse, 1 John 2, 6. Now, now let me give you a little bit of background. And some of you have done my work and read some of the stuff I've written. One of the things that radically changed my life when I was studying the life of Christ, because that kind of grew out of our youth group, was called Sun Life, because we were, as a brand new Christian 20 years ago, when I, 40 years ago when I found the Lord, I began to study the life of Christ. What did he do first year, second year, third year? And, be, and we called our youth group Sun Life. And I, I spent a lot of time studying the message of Jesus, and then I look at the methods of Jesus but about 15, 20 years ago, I began to go to another level and wrestle with what, what I like to call the model of Jesus' life. Because I was asked to speak at one of our disciple-making conference on the subject of Jesus' humanity. Little did I know having to speak on that would literally transform my own personal life and transform my ability in, in knowing how to make disciples who can make disciples. Because I began to wrestle with Jesus' humanity, and, and, and I'm probably just going to say just enough about this to be dangerous, but I'm leaving town, and Tom can answer all the questions I raise. But, but one of the things, we, we all know Jesus was fully God, don't we? Audience responds, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In him, the fullness of deity dwell. We crucified him because of those claims. He made himself equal to the Father. In him, was the fullness of deity. He was fully God. But not only was Jesus fully God, he was what? Fully man. And you begin to unpack that. And I probably, when I first began to look at it, I, I just drew some unbelievable conclusions in my own heart and mind. Because I was like so many Americans who, and I find this really true in America. I don't find it overseas. But, you know, we made Jesus in our own image. And we'd never admit that, but that's what we've done. And we define Jesus kind of as a superman. You know, he's Clark Kent. He looks human. But boy, when he goes in the phone booth, he comes out with a cape. He, he, he can do things nobody else could do. And do you know that is faulty theology? Do you know that was shot down at the Council of Chalcedon as heresy? Because see, he wasn't superhuman. He was fully human. And there's a major difference. Hebrews 2, Hebrews 5, Philippians 2 really unpacks this. But basically what this is saying, and there's two statements I love to make here. I love what Bruce Ware in his book on the humanity of Christ says. He writes this, never less than God, Jesus chose to live his life, never more than man. He was fully human. Now look at that verse. That is so powerful. Never less than God, he chose to live his life, never more than man. When I began to wrestle with the implications, of it, and I also love that it goes on, the second statement said, he was man as God intended man to be, the second Adam. What we have in Jesus, fully God, fully man, the only way theologians say you can be fully God and fully man was he veiled his deity to such an extent that his humanity could be fully expressed. In other words, he had the God card, carried the God card, but like Bruce Ware said, who's a, real, a deep theologian who's written on this, while he was incarnate, added humanity to his deity, walked in his earth, he never ever used that God card. And for a while I could never teach that because that was such a profound, different view of Jesus. And I began to wrestle with, wow, he, he became like us in every way, the Bible says, yet without sin. And he, 
And Hebrews 2 literally says that if he wouldn't have been fully human, and this is what's so critical about it, he couldn't have made atonement for our sins. So he didn't go through life, sometimes used the God card, sometimes used the, the man card. He became like us in every way. So the implication and the questions we ask then, if Jesus created a movement of multiplying disciples by taking unlearned and ignorant tax collectors and sinners, investing them for four years, and by the end of this time, within two years, they filled Jerusalem. With four and a half years, you have multiplying churches. And within 18 years, these average lay people turned the world upside down. The question that we need to ask is, how did he do that? And how did they do that? Because over 40 times in the Bible, Jesus said, I want you to walk as I walk, do what I did, follow the pattern I gave you. So I want to wrestle with that question this morning. I want to not look at the message of Jesus or even the, 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 the methods of Jesus. I want to look at the model of Jesus' life. Because I believe in Jesus' life, when we go deeper in his humanity, we understand and can understand how Jesus did what Jesus did in his humanity. And this will give us so much hope because we too are human. And God wants to work the supernatural through us. Matter of fact, Jesus said this, if any of you have faith in me, you'll do what I've been doing. Know what? You'll even do what? Greater things. I don't even like to preach that most times because it just seems so unbelievable. But yet that's what Jesus said. Jesus had four years to create, make disciples who can make disciples by God's grace. If we understand the model of Jesus' life, we can even do greater things because of length of time. So how did Jesus do it? Again, I'm going to give you the high-level look at this. We have an acronym we call Holy Spirit Power. I'm going to suggest to you six character qualities that come out of years of studying and analyzing the life of Christ. And if I had time, well, I've written about this in our study, uh, Live Like Jesus, that Tom's going to be talking about, or excuse me, Walk Like Jesus, that Tom's going to be preaching in February. You can study and go deeper on it. But let me give you those six character qualities that come out of uh, my study. And when you do this study, you'll come up maybe with different ones, but I'm going to give you it from my grid. I was teaching down in Bangkok to about six, 700 crew staff. My daughter's on staff with crew, my youngest daughter. So I was training the staff of crew in the life of Christ. And, and a, a guy came up to me afterwards and said, Dr. Spader, you know, if you take and rearrange these a little bit, it, it gives you an acronym called Holy Spirit Power. Now, I'm a simple, basic guy, and I like acronyms. So I'm going to just unpack that acronym, which we used ever since then. First and foremost, how do we do what Jesus did? How do we walk as Jesus walked? First and foremost, Jesus and his humanity was totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit dependence. I have a book that impacted my life great, greatly when I began to study Jesus as my model for how to do this. It's called... The Power and the Presence by Gerald Hawthorne. He taught Greek at, at Wheaton College, passed away about two years ago. Subtitle is The Role of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' Life. Basically what this book says is what I want to just communicate it. He, says to, he said basically everything Jesus did, everything he argues, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on in this book, he talks about he's conceived by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, sealed by the Spirit, rejoiced in the Spirit, gave commands by the Spirit, performed miracles by the Holy Spirit, raised by the Spirit, and obeyed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he shows that throughout the life of Christ. And at the very end of the book, he, he asks a very subtle question like, if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit 
What about you and I? Powerful question. I was preaching at our church in Chicago a number of years ago, and I was asked to speak on, on, on a passage in John 14 about Jesus said, I must go away. It's good that I go away so I can send you another counselor. And they wanted me to preach on the Holy Spirit, so I'd prepared my message. I'd worked on it, and, and, and as I was praying it through, it's like the Holy Spirit said to me, you ought to study the other word. I'd been preparing on counselor, the word parakaleo, Greek word, the comforter, the advocate, the counselor who comes alongside. And I had all the illustrations. We're in a three-legged race, and he said, don't get ahead of the Spirit. Don't get behind the spirit, walk in step with the spirit. And I'd studied what this paracletal, this comforter, but then like the spirit of God said, why don't you study the word before it? And the word before it in John 14, 15 is the word another. And interesting, as I began to unpack that word, I, I discovered that it's a rare word not used very often. And if my memory right, it's only used a couple times in scripture. It's, it's not the normal word heteros, it's the Greek word alas, which literally means I'm going to give you another of the exact same kind, counselor. Now, I'm German, and I'm kind of dull sometimes. But that morning, studying the scriptures, like the Spirit of God hit me by, with a two by four. He said, it's good that I go away. Because I love the gospel of John. I know in the very next chapter of John, in John 15, Jesus is going to say, I no longer call you workers, chair three. I call you friends. And I've always wanted, wow, what would it have been like to be one of the 12? Wouldn't that be great? Except to how they died, of course. <laughs> to be called by Jesus, my friend. And it hit me that morning. Jesus said, in my humanity, I can only be friends to about a dozen guys. And it because friendship takes time and it goes deeper. But it's good that I go away because I'm going to send you another of the exact same kind counselor. Now, who was the first counselor, the wonderful counselor? Jesus. And he says the Holy Spirit is going to be another of the exact same kind. Here's the point. The point how it hit me that morning is the Holy Spirit wants to be to me. What Jesus was to the 12. Is the Holy Spirit your best friend? See, I grew up in a lot of theological background. You don't ever talk about the Holy Spirit a lot because you can get weird. You know, the Holy Spirit wants to hide and just point people to Jesus. And then I read the book of Acts. You see the friendship with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. You see, how did Jesus do what Jesus did in his humanity? The umbrella over all of this was Holy Spirit dependence. Is your Holy Spirit your best friend? I mentioned I'm German and I also have a master's degree in communication. One of the things I learned early on that if you want to make a new habit, you got to practice something at least 30 days in a row. Being German, I got to practice it 60 days in a row. Maybe it's because I'm a pig farmer German from South Dakota. And so I remember setting out the very first time I began to understand this. For 60 days in a row, I made a commitment that still goes on every morning of my life to this morning also. I, first thing I do when I get up is saying, how are we doing in our friendship, Holy Spirit? How are we doing? And I can't tell you the number of times the Holy Spirit has had to rebuke me for something I said to my wife. We're doing okay, except, I'm sorry, 
or how many times he encouraged me or how many times he gave me something I'd never known before. How many times he said, great, but here's what I want you to do today. Really, I wasn't going to plan that, but I will. Jesus did everything through Holy Spirit dependence. Second thing I see in Jesus is uh, beginning the acronym of power now is he was prayerfully, prayerfully guided. If you study the life of Christ, you'll find over 45 times Jesus often slipped away to pray. 33 different instances. His ministry began with prayer and ended with prayer. Before every turning point in Jesus' life, you find him coming out of prayer. And I ask, why did he turn and go this way or this way? Because in prayer, the Father said, go this way or go this way. Interesting enough, you study that, and I've studied this over, I don't know how many times, these 45 times, every time I study it, I learn something new. But, but when I was studying it recently, it, I, I discovered that the busier Jesus became, the more he prayed, not the less. Not that we could learn anything from that. Why? Because in his humanity, I would like to argue, he didn't always know the next step to take, but he knew where to get it. And that's the beauty of the Jesus model. Do you always know the next step to take? I sure don't. As I watched our ministry grow, as I watched my kids grow and mature, I see my eight grandkids, I'm not smart enough to know what they need next, but I know where to get what they need next. It's the power and the principle of, like Jesus, taking time to pray. He was prayerfully guided. The third thing I see in Jesus' life is he, he learned obedience. Obedience that was learned. That's the all part. Holy Spirit dependent, prayerfully guidance, obedience learned. Now stop and think about that a little bit with me. If you're perfect, how do you learn obedience? <laughs> and yet he, Hebrews 5.8 says, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Oh, it would be fun to have lots of time to unpack that. But, but let me just give you my quick take on that. And you can study it deeper if you really want to go deeper in it because it's such a rich truth. I believe that what Jesus learned at 05 as he obeyed was different than what he learned at 10 and 20 and 30 years of age. Because the scripture says, I only do what pleases my father. And it says he obeyed all the way to the cross, even death on the cross. My friend Bruce Rare, who's written a book and he's kind of a theologian on the humanity of Christ, says if Christ went to the cross at 20, he probably wouldn't have been ready because his obedience muscles weren't strong enough. Now, I don't know if I would say that, but he says that. Because you see, Jesus grew his obedience muscles. Jesus learned never disobeying. He never disobeyed. He was without sin. But when he came up against an issue, he chose obedience always. And as he chose obedience, he suffered initially but had long-term joy. What we do so often is we choose disobedience and we have short-term fun but long-term suffering. And Jesus built his obedience muscles, even to in the garden where he could pray, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. He always chose obedience because he knew that obedience was his father's love language. And in my phraseology, he learned that obedience is really a lot of fun because you get to see God show up. He learned obedience. 
fourth thing I see that not only the Holy Spirit dependent and prayerfully guidance, obedience learned, he was word-centered in every area of his life. Go back and study the life of Christ. I counted 84 times Jesus quoted from the Old Testament scriptures. He quoted from 72 different Old Testament chapters. Can you quote from that many? Can I quote from that many? Probably not. What the point is this. Jesus knew the book. He studied the book. He used the book. He submitted to the book so that it may be written, fulfilled, he said. He respected the book. He was word-centered in every area of his life. And it's always fun for me to think about his humanity because the scripture tells us he increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man and he had to learn the book he wrote. Think about that one for a little bit. He wasn't downloaded with all biblical data. It was his habit regularly to study the book, to learn the book, to stand behind the book. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I know you understand this. But when your family faces a crisis, where do you turn to first? I remember the impact this had on us and our daughters. When our daughters got into high school, they began to come with problems of teenage years. And, and we decided, let's turn to a chapter and study the chapter and get principles from the book. Let's go there first to see if we can't answer that question. And it forces us as a family to say, where does God address this subject in the word? Are you word-centered? Jesus was word-centered in every area of his life. I love how in John 17, 17, 6, Jesus is talking about how he made his disciples. He said, I gave them, Father, the words that you gave me. Now, I don't know if you ever studied that passage, John 17, 6. Jesus did not use the word logos there. He said, I did not give them the written logos. He uses a word there called rima. And it's a controversial sum, but the word rima there is, is, the way I understand rima is when God takes the word of God to the spirit of God and applies it to my life. That's rima. Uh, Have you ever been reading the Bible and you're reading a passage you know real well and you say, wow, I never saw that before. You ever had that experience? Audience response goes, yeah, okay. That's called rima. And you know what my suggestion to you and my wife and I have been practicing this? When God gives you a Rima moment, just like Jesus said, I gave them the Rima you gave me, Father. When God speaks to you, don't just hold it within. Tell your spouse, tell your children, tell your grandchildren, tell the mailman, tell the person at the race restaurant, tell everybody who will listen the words God has given to you and you'll be amazed the doors that will open up. I don't have time to tell you, but I just, I just popped my mind, so I'm going to do it quickly here. As a brand new Christian, I, I have a sister that was a nun, Catholic nun. Obviously, with 16 kids, we were a very good Catholic family. And um, one of my daughters, one of my sisters was a nun. And as a brand new Christian, I just figured she was a Christian. I mean, if you go become a nun, you got to be a Christian. So I began to share with her every time I read the Bible. And I remember reading about Noah for the first time. And I I, I called her and said, wow, isn't that cool? It's really in the Bible. And I was so excited about the book. And every time I learned something, I'd share it with her. And in 16 years being a nun, she never owned a Bible. She went out and bought her first Bible and came to Christ through reading the book of Romans. You see, it was Rima. Jesus said, I gave them the words that you gave me. What's God telling you? Share it with everybody you can. That's walking as Jesus walked. Got to go on quickly. 
The, the fourth thing I see, or fifth thing I see here, is he exalted his father in everything. Oh, there's so much that could be said here. Let me just say it quickly in this way. There's a principle in Jesus' life that is so powerful when you see it. And I'll frame it up with two verses, John 3.21. It's a rare verse. Many people don't look at it too much. But in John 3.21, Jesus said this. When you walk in the truth, when you walk in the light, whoever lives by that truth will come into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done through God. Uh, this is taking a quoting from the Old Testament where the, the writer in Isaiah says, all that we did, God, you did through us. <laughs> you know, it's kind of oxymoron there. All that we did, God, you did through us. And Jesus said, when you walk in the light, you soon discover that if anything good came out of your life, it's not you, it's God. And Jesus teaches that principle throughout his life and models that. And then I love you come to John 17, 7. At the very end of his life, he's praying to his father in the Kidron Valley. And he, he lifts up his eyes and he prays. And he says, Father, these men, my disciples, know that everything I have came from you, Father. Did you hear that? Jesus didn't say, they know that most of the things I have came from you. No, he said, all that I have came from you. Do your children know that about you? Do your disciples know that? You see, Jesus always exalted his father in his humanity as the source of everything. Five times in between those two bookends of John 3.21 and, and uh, John 17.7, 7, Jesus said five times, I do nothing on my own initiative. I do nothing on my own accord. I do nothing on my own. If Jesus said that, how much more should we? Make sense? Walking as Jesus walks means we are always exalting the Father, both in good and bad, as the source of our life. And then lastly, the last thing I want to see, not only Holy Spirit dependent, perfectly guided, obedience learned, word center, exalting the Father in everything, but I see what I call relationships of love and integrity. Relationships of love and integrity. You see, Jesus spent the first couple years of his life modeling these character qualities and his disciples got it that's why they wrote later on walk as Jesus walked and they wrote about these character qualities and then immediately after he began to model this kind of, then he went and began to say come and see and follow me and he began to teach those God brought into their lives the very way that he was living and why did those unlearned Simple people turn the world upside down because they walked as Jesus walked. You see, discipling to me is not a curriculum. It's a way of life. It's not a program. It's giving away our life to others, giving away Jesus to others. Let me just close with this illustration. It's about a lady by the name of Vi. Vi grew up in a small community, a rural community, she went to a small church in this community, a church of about 100 people. They brought in an evangelist to preach throughout the week, and he was speaking about the Great Commission and going and making disciples and teaching them to obey and talking about him giving your life away and sharing the good news and reproducing your life by investing in others. And all week long, Vi says, I struggled so much that week. Because inside I was saying, God, I can't. I'm not good at this. I can't do this. And God all week long kept laying one family on her heart 
a farm family closest to where she lived, a half a mile down the road. Finally, at the end of the week, Vi said, okay, God, I'll try. You know I'm not good at this, but I'll try. She mustered up the courage, and as providence would have it, she, she went down to that farm family, knocked on the door, and they'd been friends for years. They invited her to come in, sat down on the kitchen table with a cup of coffee and started talking. And Vi says, you know, we've been friends for years, but I've never shared with you the most important thing in my life. Can I share that with you? And the lady says, sure. She began to share the gospel. The lady was fairly interested, but it's, it would be the, the man of that home came in and sat in his chair and was listening in on that conversation. And the longer he listened, the, more, the matter he got. And finally, he just kind of blew up and said, what are you doing here? We have our religion. We don't need your religion. Leave us alone. And literally kicked her off the farm. Vi, Vi went back to her farm and just, she said, I wept. I wept. She said, God, I tried, but I'm just not good at this. As Providence would have it that afternoon, the son from the farm she got kicked off was playing with her son. She looked out the kitchen window and saw him, and she said, God, he said, Vi said, God, I can pray. And God, if you help me, I'll pray for that boy every day, if not every week. And she set her heart of praying for that boy. That boy went through grade school, he went through high school, and off at college through a series of miraculous events came to Christ began to share in his fraternity house, led a bunch of others to Christ, began to lead a Bible study, came back, visited his home, led a bunch of his family members to Christ, and heard to the grapevine that Vi was a Christian as he understood being a Christian. He went over to Vi and said, Vi, Vi, um, just a few weeks ago, I invited Christ to come into my life. Are you a Christian like that? And Vi just started bawling. And the boy said, I'm sorry, did I say something wrong? And Vi said, no, I've been praying for you for almost every day for the last 10 years. And then all of a sudden that boy started crying too. I know that story really well because I'm that young man. Most of my family are now Christ followers. All of my daughters are disciple makers. We're in 117 countries around the world, and I'm not telling you, it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Vi and her prayers. Because Vi invested in me through praying. You see, any of us can do this. Don't make it harder than it is. Do you want to come in front of him one day and say, and have him say to you, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org/messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.